Vegas Live. It is Thursday, July 8th, year of our Lord, 2021. We're jam-packed tonight. I'm back in Nashville. We have not spoken, you and I, since last Thursday, at least on this show. So for that, I apologize, even though one of you emailed me last night and said, stop apologizing. You got to miss a show every now and then. You got to miss a show. Close your ears, sir. I apologize anyway. Look, here's how jam-packed we are tonight. I can't go two hours. I think the law prohibits it this time of year, but I cannot even talk to you about these things. Uh, Dare Rosenthal is probably headed to Kentucky, so that's just a starting left tackle in the SEC, transferring within the SEC. There's so much NIL stuff, it could choke a pig. I can't talk about all of it tonight. we got Media Day's announcements. How about Demetrius Robertson, former number one rated receiver in the country, was at Cal and at Georgia. He announced his destination today. He's headed to Auburn. He'll be immediately eligible. That's the stuff we can't fit in the show tonight. So here's what we are talking about. We have had a recruiting wave, the likes of which yeah, we kind of expected, but now it's coming to fruition, and so we've got so much to talk about there. In fact, just today, we've had several major verbal commitments to touch on. We also have several pivotal seasons coming. I'm going to talk in just a second. I think, yeah, we're going to lead the show off with it. There are two kinds of college football fans out there. Uh, one of you, you just like any game. If they're, if they're keeping score, you'll watch. But another kind... You like the more soap opera pro wrestling portion, the storyline crowd. Neither is wrong. I mean, both. there's a place for both of you. Well, 2021, we'll have it in plentiful supply. You don't have to worry about that. Ohio State over the next five years. I got into a little, as we call it, a tiff the other day with one of you, which turned into 50 of you, about Ryan Day. And so I've talked about it on the Light Kick Extra podcast, but I'm going to talk about it in a little bit more detail tonight, just what I mean when I say next to Nick Saban, there ain't a guy on this planet I'd take to lead Pate State University today and moving forward than Ryan Day. Yes, that includes, fill in the blank, the names you're saying right now. Yeah, that includes all of them. All that plus a really interesting and in-depth feature that Brandon Marcello had on 247sports.com, the main page today, about Brian Harson at Auburn and this philosophy of whether you can take, in this case, the Boise State Blueprint, and you can pack it up in a moving van and drive it all the way across the country, across a river that you've probably never lived east of in your life, called the Mississippi, and can you plant those roots in the Southeastern Conference and watch it grow? History says, yeah, it's possible. It has been done before. Can Brian Harson do it? And what does this have to do with the rest of college football? We're going to talk about all that and more tonight. Look, we got a whole lot of high school coaching staffs who watch this show, and I've done a poor job of shouting them out. So if you are on a high school staff, make sure you hit me up and let me know you guys watch. I'm going to give you an example. Coach V and the entire staff down in Flomington, Alabama, which is so far south in Alabama, you almost have to look north to see the Gulf of Mexico from there. But the Flomington Hurricanes, they checked the show out. So Coach V, the entire staff down there, we appreciate it. Uh, you guys can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, at LateKickJaws. If you're watching, let me know. And we'll get some push your high school's way on the show. Also, I've, uh, I'm going to save it to the end, but some interesting things are happening just in the general late kick world. A little call to action, I'm going to say for the end of the show. But as for the beginning of the show, uh, it's going to happen right now. 2021, as you know, has already been labeled an inevitable renaissance year on this program. I think it's going to be incredible. The 2021 college football show, or the well, we'll have a lot of shows, but the 2021 college football season, I think will be unlike anything that we've seen uh, to this point in anyone's life, only because there are unique angles and a lot of different unique dynamics. But the 2021 season fits every box. It checks every box, no matter what kind of fan you are. In college football, we tend to have two kinds of fans. You've got what I call anglers, 
and then you got gamers. The angler crowd needs just that. They need an angle. They need something else. They need a little rub. They need a little storyline. And that's cool. So there'll be a lot of seasoning on this year's games for a lot of powerhouse programs. Now, the gamers, again, if they're keeping score, if there are lines on the field, if it's an organized 11 on 11, you're going to watch. Well, we'll have enough for all of you this year. Think about this. I'm going to run down a list of some powerhouse programs here and everything that could be on the line this year. I'm not talking about teams that went 6-6 six and six last year or who are maybe just floundering under a brand new staff. These are mainstays. These are programs we talk about all the time, and they're at pivotal points. I stop short of saying crossroads or hot seat or anything like that. Every situation is unique. Most of these are perennial contenders. But just think about how different we're viewing these programs right now versus the way we could be viewing them in December or January, depending on how this year goes. Because I was thinking about this today, and I came up with one for Clemson, but then I came up with one for Oklahoma and Georgia and LSU and Florida, and I said, well, that's a segment, so let's do it. How about Clemson this year? Dabo has the exact combination he wants. He's got a world-class roster, and he's also got enough doubt. Now, doubt is relative because everyone's going to pick them to win the ACC. Everyone's going to pick him to make the playoff. A lot of folks are going to pick him to win the national championship. Dabo will find like two or three folks who don't and then plaster that all over his bulletin board in his locker room, and he'll have enough uh, to fuel them from a disrespect and doubt standpoint for the entire year. I'm not crazy about that approach. I've well-documented that on the show, but it'll be there. I don't, I'm not the head coach at Clemson. Dabo Swinney is. But... I was talking to some people over the past week, and in the coaching world, in the recruiting world, just all across the spectrum of college football, there are some whispers about Clemson. The whispers are about potential vulnerability, because for a while they looked invincible. For a while it looked like they were about to supplant Alabama as the top program in the country, and it's not like they've fallen off or anything, uh, but they've entered that different stratosphere. They've entered that stratosphere that only Alabama normally hangs out in, to where you get judged to this insane standard and every year you don't win a title, the follow-up year is, or are they about to enter a drought period? Well, no, it's not a drought period, but here's what the whisper campaign consists of. Number one, it is, huh, are they hitting at the absurdly high level from a recruiting and development standpoint that they were? So you watched every single kid come in there and develop to their maximum potential, and it just, people looked at it and said, is that sustainable? Are they really always going to have that that high a hit rate, and you know, common sense says, no, eventually no, I don't think so, but we'll see. And then the second part of it is the sport's changing. So the very foundation on which you build your program, you have to constantly evolve because that foundation's changing. NIL didn't exist five years ago. It exists now, not 50 years ago, five years ago. And so you've had some famous quotes by Dabo Swinney, horribly taken out of context recently, but nonetheless, they've been thrown around. And there was some off-field stuff last year, and make no mistake, for a program that's really hard to crack the veneer of, that stuff is used on the recruiting trail. And then the third part of that whisper campaign is just that. Is there a little slippage in recruiting? And fourthly, if you want to look at the potential for week one this year, and this is where the pivotal aspect of 2021 comes into play, Think about where this season starts for Clemson. You don't respect their conference schedule. I don't either. The ACC will have to massively overachieve for them to have any kind of reputable or noteworthy strength of schedule in conference this year. But they open with Georgia. Right there in Charlotte, NC, on Saturday night. What is it, September 4th, Colin? And we'll all be there, and you'll be watching if you're not there. And if they lose the game, Here's how quickly things change. If they were to lose it by double digits, here's what it would sound like. 
Clemson can do all the damage they want to in the ACC, but the last three times I've seen them on the field with an elite power, it was LSU in a title situation two years ago, they got run. It was Ohio State in a semifinal situation last year, they got run. And now, lo and behold, they got another shot against Georgia, and they got run. At that point, in the minds of many, it will not matter what they accomplish the rest of the way. The one thing they focused on when they got run out of that building by Ohio State, Brent Venables, Dabo Swinney, what they said they were the most disappointed in is the toughness factor. It's been there, it's been there, it's been there, and all of a sudden it's not there. How do you get that back? Well, I don't know. It's intangible in nature, but yet there's some very tangible things you can do to get it back. Number ones have a lot of really, really good players. They have them. They were young last year. They got a little year's worth of seasoning on them this year. Just watch that because you won't have to wait to the end of the year for that talking point with Clemson. That happens early on. Second team I want to focus on. The LSU Tigers. Now, this is the most easy breakdown out of this entire show and out of this entire season. If you are an agnostic college football fan, you don't have a team to root for, but you kind of like the sport, this is the one to follow this year. If we were going to put a documentary crew with one team this year, it's Ed Orgeron, it's LSU. This is the most unique team and to me the most interesting team in college football in 2021 because it's the only one that I look at and say there is no ceiling on them. They're capable of winning a title. The talent level's that good. There's no floor here. If it goes bad, it could go horribly wrong. If they don't have a lot of the internals that were terrible last year fixed, it could go horribly wrong. No amount of talent can save you. Well, that makes for a very interesting season, whether you're a gamer or whether you're an angler. So we check all the boxes here. But understand how violently things changed. Just over a 365-day period. LSU fans know this. Plug your ears for 15 seconds. They go from walking in Bryant-Denny Stadium in 2019 and really just taking control of Alabama. They, they grabbed Alabama by the shirt, they rolled it up, and they put them on skates for four quarters. Very rarely do you see anyone do that to Alabama, period. But to go into Bryant-Denny Stadium and to just dictate terms and then a year later have them come into Baton Rouge and paint the walls with your blood, that has a lot more to do with a football game and the outcome than just Oh, we lost this player here. Oh, we lost that player there. Well, they lost like three dozen of them. But there were internal dynamics that sucked. Get all that straight. Have Durante Jones, for example, be a grand slam hire as your defensive coordinator. Have a quarterback not only emerge, but take the job by the throat. And then you get that synergy. That synergy that you had in spades, buckets full of it in 2019 that you didn't have in 2020, you start to get that back. And then all of a sudden you look at LSU's schedule, as we're doing right now, UCLA, they'll be a small favorite in that game, four or five points, depending on where it closes at. Uh, they go to Mississippi State. They've got Auburn. They'll be a single-digit favorite in that game. They've got Florida. They'll be a single-digit favorite there. But the point is, there are going to be games where, from a point spread standpoint, you'll look at and you'll say, one, two, three, four, five losable games there before the bye week. But an LSU fan, that at Ole Miss, that's not a cakewalk either. But an, an LSU fan looks and says, if we look glass half full, if this team is maximizing its potential, we're undefeated November 6th against Alabama. The SEC West is yet again on the line November 6th against Alabama. So you see quickly what I mean when I say no floor, no ceiling. The Florida Gators are on the schedule for LSU. That is uh, October 16th. So let's talk about Florida here. They did some good things last year, obviously. They beat Georgia. They won the East. They went to Atlanta. They did some horrific things last year, too, but this is not a 2020 year in review. I want to ask simply, Florida fans can answer this for me better than I can because I'm asking you the question, is 2020 the kind of year you can build on? Or, you know what, if you're not a Florida fan, 
now that we see in totality what 2020 consisted of, is that the kind of year you can build on? If I were to tell you last summer the things that were going to happen, you would certainly believe, well, they've thrust themselves right to the top of the East for the foreseeable future, yada, yada, yada. Well, circumstances dictate otherwise. And so here we are. They come in off a crushing disappointment to end the year. But then Dan Mullen had the famous quote that bent a lot of people the wrong way, me included, in the bowl game where he said, well, you know, this year's, this year's 2020 Gator team, they finished the season a couple of weeks ago in Atlanta. Okay, that's all well and good. Point being, 2021 now arrives, and there'll be a healthy amount of skepticism thrown Florida's way. I don't think nationally people are going to buy the concept that Emory Jones is going to light the world on fire, but yet he could because Dan Mullen's done it before. In fact, multiple times Dan Mullen's done it. He has had quarterback talent overachieve relative to expectation. He specializes in that. But I want you to think about all the talking points around Florida. They're going to be down here. They're going to be down there. Offense is not going to be what it was last year. Defense, there's no reason to believe some quantum leap's going to be made. In fact, you could argue it's the least talented secondary they've had in a few years. But you say all that, and if I were to tell you they're going to split out of Bama and LSU, first portion of their schedule, they're going to split those two games and take care of business the rest of the way. Guys, the SEC East is still on the line again when they play Georgia October 30th. It's really as clear-cut and as simple as that. So if Florida is, again, spiking or maximizing potential and you know they even have room to lose a game early on, well, that's what it comes down to. The, the East has been no mystery as of late. That's usually what the situation is, and it could be that way again. So if that's the case, good for Florida. And I think you can let the chips fall where they may. If I were to tell you as a Gator fan, East is going to be on the line again in Jacksonville. You'll take your chances at that point because you think you got a game day advantage against Kirby Smart and Georgia. And I'm not going to sit here and argue with you necessarily, but you guys wholeheartedly believe that. You would take that. But what if you get to Jacksonville, and this is the negative side of the coin. This is the glass with 14 holes poked in it. What if the East is already decided for all intents and purposes by the time you get there? My point is, what if the potential just isn't there this year and we get to the end of 2021 and you're looking around and you're saying Florida ran out of gas uh, early November and so what are we supposed to make of this program right now? I don't know what it would feel like. It would feel like a ship out in the middle of the ocean and the rudder's broken and you're just kind of at the mercy of the waves. I don't know if that's how it would feel. I'm guessing that's how it may feel. So let's hope for the first instead of the second. Oklahoma's fascinating. So Phil Steele puts out his magazine. I think he's got OU rated number one. I'm going to have them way up there. I'm very high on Oklahoma. I did a segment about a month ago where I told you this is the first year where I feel like they're capable of truly winning a championship. There's a gulf in college football, a gulf between being a playoff contender and being a title contender. Even though the separation looks like it's only winning one more game, it's, it's a lot different than that. You ask Notre Dame, for example, the difference between making the playoff and winning a national championship. This year is different for Oklahoma. So think about where the Sooners are. Okay, think about how the, the entire picture is starting to come into focus for Oklahoma. I'm a big believer that this is the first year Oklahoma is capable of winning a title. But here's the thing. I'm not alone there. And the reason that's important is because I don't know if you guys realize this. Oklahoma has not been held to a truly championship standard by the college football public. You think they have because they've been highly rated. They haven't. And let me tell you exactly what I'm talking about. If the University of Alabama were to lose to Kansas State two years in a row, what would the narrative be? And then think about the fact that Oklahoma has done it. You see, subconsciously, there's only one tier one in college football, and there's really only one or two teams that hang out there, and they get held to a different standard, understandably so, than anybody else in America. Oklahoma has not subconsciously been held to that standard yet. This point moving forward, they will. 
And so a lot of the stuff that you've kind of let slide because you just hadn't held them to quite that tier one lofty standard, that's the standard they're held to this year. It's the best team Lincoln Riley's had. People realize that. Alex Grinch has the defense he wants now, or at least needs to have, to compete for and maybe win a title. I agree with that. A lot of people agree with that. Well, what comes with that is pressure. It's a privilege to coach under that kind of pressure, but it's pressure nonetheless. You can't be losing to Kansas State. You can't be dropping games like that. You know, you can't sit there and, and have your quarterback benched at halftime in the Red River shootout. That kind of stuff flies when you're not held to a Tier 1 standard. When you're held to the T1 standard, it's a little bit different. It quite literally becomes championship or disappointment. It's not been the case for Lincoln Riley so far at Oklahoma. It will be this year. And so some things that would fly in the past will now be viewed as a disappointment. At Georgia, I do not believe in championship or bust with anyone, really, because bust would indicate failure. And then with Georgia, people, some of whom, take the added five steps of saying bust equals hot seat. So beat Alabama, win a title, or hot seat for Kirby Smart. Well, of course, that's ludicrous, and we've already spelled that out in parade detail on the show. I believe Georgia will have a significant bump in offensive production this year. Having said that, what if they don't? Let's just entertain this for a second. What if you've watched them in Athens build to this, and they've acquired and assembled the talent, they've always had good offensive line talent, and they've had good mixtures of talent at receiver, but they've never had it across the board like they will this year. They've got two dominant forces at tight end. They're always set in the backfield at tailback. But now, finally, what you and I have been told is the missing piece of that equation, quarterback, is finally answered. The blank is finally filled with JT Daniels, and so you are led to believe everything that's needed. All the ingredients for the meal that you've wanted to consume in the way of Georgia football for so long, they're all in the kitchen. What if it just doesn't pan out? What if they do stumble out of the gate against Clemson and the talking point after that is, all right, got to regroup, lick your wounds, nothing's lost, everything's still on the table, but they really just never hit stride. Well, then it does get uncomfortable. I'm not talking hot seat or anything like that, but it does get uncomfortable for them because People are going to look, rightfully so, and they're going to say, well, if you didn't do it this year, when are you going to do it? You remember that? Because that's what they were saying about Florida this time last year. You know, Georgia's vulnerable. The schedule path is there. Dan Mullen's got his best collection of this and that, yada, yada, yada. And in some ways they achieved, and in other ways they faltered. Well, what if Georgia looks around and you've got an ultra-green Alabama offense, you got a new everything over in Tuscaloosa, Florida's got to play LSU and Bama. You don't have to play either of them. So you got a wide open path to Atlanta. You get a good test to begin the season. The team you theoretically would meet in Atlanta is going to be as vulnerable as they have been in a while. If you can't get it done with the boxes checked this year, they're going to ask, when are you ever going to get it done? So if you're demanding storyline on top of your college football, there it is. And lastly, all the way out on the West Coast at USC, this one's pretty simple, I think. It's just the Clay Helton job security factor, but if we dive a little bit deeper on that, are the elements there defensively that they need to be consistent? Because consistency is going to be the name of the day for Slovis at quarterback, obviously. But if you were to look, I was looking at Bill Conley's S&P Plus ratings, and it's very confusing. On one hand, you see this quantum leap in defensive production last year. They went from, I think, 60th to like 29th in S&P Plus defense, but then they were... 118th in tackle success rate, which essentially means this. It doesn't matter if you find where the freight train is if you hop in front of them and just get run over. So there are a lot of things, little tweaks I would call them, but things that are needed in terms of execution and better tackling on the defensive side. But then the other thing is, just from an overarching standpoint, 
I ask about USC, for better or for worse, are we just going to get a definitive answer this year with them? Because that's what USC fans keep talking about. i got a couple of buddies that talk about this all the time. They're Southern Cal fans, and they've gotten into that Kevin Sumlin territory. Once upon a time at A&M, they used to say the same thing. And it was, we're tired of floating in no man's land. No man's land for an elite college football program is eight or nine wins. It's not good enough for you. You expect more but it's certainly not bad enough to make a move and get a new staff in there. And so the last thing Southern Cal fans want this year is an eight or nine win season. They either want to win the Pac-12 and be in the playoff, or they want the bottom to fall out, so there is absolutely no doubt what has to happen. So again, whether we're talking Clemson or LSU or Florida or Oklahoma, Georgia, USC, if it is a storyline you need, I got about 10 of them for every one of those programs. And again, these are the mainstay current modern-day blue blood programs in college football, and every single one of them, you get that little that little nervous, scratch-the-neck sort of feeling about, because, it, listen, it could turn out great. Every one of those teams I just mentioned, it could at least contend for a playoff spot, I would say. Uh, but it could go sideways for them, too. Really fun to watch. That is one of many reasons we love this sport. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's move it on. It was a big day. It's been a big month. I mean, I'm looking, I'm about to talk about him in a second. You know, Penn State's had six commitments this month, and the I, Josh, tells me it's only July 8th. Still a long way to go. We looked at the recruiting calendar. Colin, here's your end cut. When we looked at the recruiting calendar, and we looked at when the dead period was going to end, and we saw that a lot of official visits were being lined up in June, remember what we thought on the show, and it's been validated, was there was going to be a wave of official visits in June, and then we thought the commitment wave would come in July and August. Well, here we are in July, and sure enough, we got one of those good old-fashioned commitment waves on our hands. Just today alone, several big-time commitments. Earlier today, in the last few hours, Jeremiah Alexander, five-star linebacker out of Alabaster, beautiful Alabaster, Alabama, the house that they say Tim Watts built. Well, he committed to Alabama, not Tim Watts. That's JUCO at best. But Jeremiah Alexander does commit to Alabama. He decommitted a little while ago. The thing I take away from this, I'll get to the player himself in a second, is there's this dichotomy and there's this, this huge gap between the way that fans handle decommitments and the way coaching staffs handle decommitments. And I think it has a lot more to do with wisdom and a long-term perspective on things. Fans, it's torch and pitchfork time when you get a decommitment. Alexander was committed to Bama. He decommitted. Carl Scott, I think, was his lead recruiter at the time. Now, Freddie Roach took over his recruitment, and you got a hat tip Freddie Roach for this thing, and the entire Alabama staff, because they stayed on him, didn't pressure him. They understand the long game. They play it there every year. And so Jeremiah Alexander commits back to Alabama today. Now, my question is, the folks who go full torch and pitchfork mode, they disappear. They disappear, and they show up only to question coaching decisions in the third quarter in the fall. And I just wish that we could have a screenshot function to where every statement that you've made, you're at least held to account for. 
not on Twitter, but maybe on a message board, let's say. Because there was a lot of it. I remember there was a lot of it. And so he recommits to Alabama physically very advanced. He plays at Thompson High School. Mark Freeman's got a team there right now that has multiple five-star kids, both from this class and the next class. And they got a really good, it's a really good program there at Thompson. They've been pumping them out for a long time. But I would expect Jeremiah Alexander, along with Ty Simpson, the quarterback they already have committed at Alabama, those are two guys that can kind of alpha their class. You always have those sort of leaders amongst highly rated kids. Certain leaders rise to the top, and Alexander's one of those guys. Ty Simpson's been one of those guys at the quarterback position. And that's how you like to see it happen. Now, at LSU, just a few hours ago, too, Demario Holland committed. That's a four-star linebacker, not from in-state, though. So I want you to think about this. D.R. Phillips is a high school down in the Orlando area, and um, that's where this young man currently attends. I think he transferred there recently. This is a four-star linebacker. He's probably going to play eventually at around 225. Uh, he's got all the characteristics LSU wants at the linebacker position. But Blake Baker was the lead recruiter here. Most of you don't know that name. That's a former assistant at Miami. He is now the linebacker's coach at LSU. And this one stung a little bit. If you're a Miami Hurricane fan, they were none too pleased at the fact that they felt Baker whiffed his fair share in his time in Coral Gables Goes to Baton Rouge, and all of a sudden, he's just reaching into Florida, plucking kids out. And if you didn't already know it, Blake Baker himself let you know on Twitter a little while ago. He had that one teed up. He had it ready to go. Like I said, I'm not mad at him because I would have done the same thing or worse. LSU with 13 commitments right now. That's the number four class in the country. Average player rating 93.38. That is among the very best in America. LSU, what's most impressive right now for the Tigers is you would think if you don't pay attention to recruiting that all this off-the-field noise and the disaster that was 2020, you would think, oh, that must be a snowball of fiery damnation for their recruiting, right? Nope, not at all. They keep rolling along. I don't know how it all ends, but I'll tell you there's a lot of skill in quieting and easing those concerns when you get into the living room and when you get on Zoom or Skype with a kid and you convince him and mom and dad and coaches and mentors and whatnot this is the place for you. Because, like I said, that's not an in-state kid. They're competing nationally for guys, and they're winning their fair share. Oregon is as impressive a recruiting machine right now, all things considered, as any program in America this side of maybe like Tuscaloosa or Columbus. But what Oregon's doing is unique even in and of what the programs I just mentioned are doing because Oregon's doing it by necessity. You know, Alabama, they don't have to recruit nationally. They choose to. Uh, Ohio State's kind of the same. Oregon doesn't have that luxury. They have to recruit nationally. They know it. So what did they do this past week? Since we last spoke, all Oregon did was march right into Humble, Texas, home of Kenny Kirchhofer, if you know, you know. And they took a five-star offensive tackle by the name of Kevin Banks out of there. And I remember not too long ago being told and reading from several different sources that Texas felt really good about where they were. I saw Mike Roach over on Horns 24-7 talking about this the other day. Texas felt really good about where they were, which is why you can understand my surprise when I see Mr. Banks commit to Oregon. That in and of itself is big. A five-star in-state Texas product, all the local schools want. He chooses to take his talents to the Pacific Northwest. But not only was that the case, he said it was Oregon and then Texas A&M finishing number two. It's very early on in the staff's tenure and regime at Texas. I get that. But still, a little bit of a tough pill to swallow for Steve Sarkeesian. Had a little, a little bug in my throat there. Oregon is a... How do I want to say this? All right, I'll just say it. 
Look, uh, people are rubbed the wrong way by Oregon right now because they're doing what people think they're not supposed to be able to do. And that's recruit at a national level, not taking backup options. They're coming into your backyard and they're taking your A-list options. Oregon is a threat anywhere they show up in America right now. Any high school, any state they walk into, they're a threat. They've got a brand that sells across the country. Uh, they are very attractive. It's unique. It's an established product at this point. It's a product that's on the rise. It is universally viewed as a program of tomorrow rather than, let's say, a program of yesterday. Kids love the culture. Kids love Mario Cristobal. They've got a great staff up there. A lot of people think they've only scratched the surface, and NIL is right in their wheelhouse. And so this is one of probably not the last time, that we're going to see a kid of this caliber choose to leave a geographical region of the country you normally don't see kids leave, and he's going to do it, and he's going to go all the way to Eugene, Oregon to play his college football. So that was a really big deal. Oregon, I think, uh, top 10, I think they're number nine right now in the uh, overall team rankings. So keep an eye on the Ducks. They're not done. There was a big running back on, I think this was around July 4th, Nicholas Singleton was from Reading, PA, so he's an in-state kid, four-star running back. He commits to Penn State. This is, as I said, Penn State's sixth verbal commitment this month, and it's really key because if you've watched Penn State, you may see some areas of deficiency. Running back has not been among them. They have hit and hit and hit some more at the running back spot, and this is a guy that some of our folks here at 24-7 believe could eventually be rated the top overall running back in the country, 10 and a half yards per carry average right now in high school, and if you watch him, it's not hard to understand why a lot of people would say physically he's already college ready. Rising senior in high school, but already college ready. But it's exciting because he's got the size and the speed. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. And that is a guy, again, health assumed, that continues that lineage of big-time tailback production that you get at Penn State. So those are just some of the names. Uh, there's also another name. I'm not going to go in-depth on him because he hasn't committed anywhere. C.J. Williams is a recruitment to watch. I was talking to some of my well, some of our folks about him today, C.J. Williams, there's a lot of Notre Dame smoke with him. This is a high four-star wide receiver out of, I think, modern day out in Southern California. And Notre Dame is trending big time. I saw Greg Biggins put a crystal ball pick in, uh, level six, I think, for C.J. Williams potentially to Notre Dame. And Notre Dame is number three in the country as of this moment. When we made the graphic, I told our folks down in Fort Lauderdale, let's wait as late as possible to make this graphic for tonight. Why? Because I was scared someone was going to commit 30 minutes before the show. So as of this moment, could change by the end of the broadcast, there are the 2022 team recruiting rankings. You notice Michigan just kind of sneaking around down there at number 10, just no one talking about them a whole lot. Uh, but we'll see. There's a lot, obviously, still to unfold here. Uh, but I also, it's not going to happen this cycle, but in future cycles, one of the things I have told you I'm going to track is how many kids push their announcement deeper in the cycle. It used to be the trend. Now it's the current trend to get as much of your class locked up in the summer as you can. And I wonder, because it would benefit you in the long run to grow your social media followings, which benefits you in the NIL game, I wonder how many kids are going to push their commitment dates back further and further to maximize the exposure, maximize the impressions, maximize the headline push, maximize the follower count. That makes you squirm if you are of a certain age. Uh, or a certain mentality, let's just say, and I understand it, but I do think that may be a reality. Not this cycle, but in coming cycles. The end for recruiting today. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I made a statement about Ryan Day, which I thought was common sense, uh, but it got really twisted and miscontextualized, so I wanted to revisit it tonight. 
I wonder where Ohio State's headed the next five years. And to me, I don't really wonder. I think I know. But I said something the other day, and it turned into this heated debate on Twitter and Instagram. So I wanted to bring it on the show because I talked about it on the Extra Podcast, but I wanted to bring it on the show as promised. Here's what I said. If Pate State had an opening at head coach, and of course we can get whoever we want to because we just roll like that, and I was making a hire for the next five years. Notice next five years. There are only two guys I'd have on the list. One is Nick Saban, and then the next one is Ryan Day. And then I just cut off the list. And my real point was to emphasize Ryan Day would be next up right now behind Nick Saban for me. Obviously, I got a lot of pushback on that. Half of it was from people who didn't understand what I was saying. They just thought I was power rating head coaches. And obviously, if I were doing that, I wouldn't be listing Ryan Day number two based on achievement. But we're not running an awards banquet here. It's not a lifetime achievement award. It's not a celebration of a career. If it was, then Dabo Swinney would rightfully be parked in that number two spot behind only Nick Saban. That's not what we were doing. I'm projecting forward here. So I'm going to ask you to do the same. Just play along with me here. Project forward next five years. It's not like I'm disparaging one to prop up the other. Dabo Swinney is a very competitive number three on this list for me, just for the record. But I'd have Ryan Day above all of them, other than Nick Saban. The next five years is what I'm focused on. I don't know how you don't buy into Ryan Day's next five years. What does he not have? Because everything to me he's a B-plus or better in when it comes to the elements it takes, characteristics it takes to succeed at the highest level. An assassin as a recruiter. Got a whole staff of assassins as recruiters. Phenomenal development at Ohio State. The ability to evolve. The ability to adapt. He understands the formula for success. And I'll tell you what else he understands. The formula for long-term sustainable motivation. It doesn't come out of preaching disrespect and using bulletin board material. Case in point, last year going into that semifinal game, when they played Clemson, and there was some of that, some of that yapping coming from down near Clemson, Ohio State, not only did they steamroll them, they had every reason after that to find the nearest live microphone on that field and say, everything they talked about all week and all month and whatnot, that's what fueled us. They never even mentioned them. They just talked about worrying about ourselves. We focus on a process. It's all about internal, intrinsic, this and that. Man, that's not coach speak. That's a philosophy. That's sustainable, too. When you don't rely on anything else and you know the fuel source is inside your own program and inside your players and you can get them to believe that, that's elite leadership. It's hard to do that. That's why so many people don't achieve it. Ryan Day commands authority, never had a track record as a head coach, and yet immediately, day one, the moment he's announced, he's got everyone's attention. I'll circle back to that in a second because that in and of itself is big. He's just elite. In every aspect of leadership, Ryan Day is elite. So I keep asking people who I get pushback on, on this particular topic especially on, I just ask, what is it he lacks? And you can point to the trophy case. I'm not a believer that you always have to see it achieved before you believe it's possible. I go back to the old Roger Bannister four-minute mile thing. Roger Bannister, first guy to run a sub-four-minute mile. Was he incapable of it till the moment that his chest broke the tape at the finish line, or was he capable of it before and then the result happened? I believe Ryan Day, and Ohio State under Ryan Day, is capable of winning multiple championships. I believe they're capable of being parked right at the top of the sport for a prolonged period of time, I think they're capable of it now. I think he's at that level now, and it will come to fruition in the future. If we're just doing that thing where we wait until it's accomplished to believe that someone's capable of it, 
then what are we doing? A blind monkey could operate this thing at this point. I saw, um, Colin and I were talking about this. I will not mention the outlet. But I saw someone put out a list the other day. Top 20 head coaches in college football. And this dude not on them. I counted four or five Big Ten head coaches listed above Ryan Day. I'm telling you right now, I didn't even waste time reading what the criteria was. So forgive me if I'm misunderstanding it. Any of you who want to endorse that ideology, decide how much money it's going to take to make you uncomfortable, and then we'll bet on it. You want to take Fleck over Ryan Day? You want to take all due respect, James Franklin's next five years over Ryan Day? Pick any of them in the Big Ten. You want to take their next five years over Ryan Day? Any amount that it takes to make you uncomfortable. And if you can outbid me, I'll go find investors. Because this is one of the smartest bets and one of the safest investments that anyone out there could make. This dude is lapping the Big Ten. Uh, I don't understand how anyone sees it any other way, but again, that's between you and your diary. But consider how amazing this process was. I think history will accurately judge it, but since we're still in the present, I don't think people properly understand and appreciate what just happened there over the last couple of years. You've got one of the all-time greats in Urban Meyer who is currently coaching an NFL team. you got one of the all-time greats there in Urban Meyer, and then he steps down, and they don't conduct what you expect them to do, which is a national head coaching search. They promote from within. Ryan Day, hardcore college football fans knew who he was. If you're just a casual fan who lives in Boulder, Colorado, you said who? Ohio State. Announced who? As Homst as a head coach? Ryan Day. And not only did that happen, they didn't hesitate. That should be signal number one, that guy's different. But if that didn't convince you, then consider this. You know how good that coaching staff is? Brian Hartline, you know how good he is? You know how good Larry Johnson is? You know how loaded that roster is? Do you know how good their player personnel and development department is? Mickey Mariotti, guys like that. All of these guys could have their choice of about 99% of equivalent jobs in America, and none of them left. They looked universally inside that program, looked at a guy who had never been a head coach a day in his life, and collectively said, yeah, we got no problem following this guy. We got no problem blindly casting our lot with him. The secret is it wasn't blind at all. If you've ever been around greatness, you don't have to guess. If you've ever been around it, it stands out. It stands out like a pumpkin in a cherry orchard. You don't have to wonder, I wonder if that guy's great. It, it, it emanates. You understand it immediately. You can't believe it. If you spend a day with it, you go home and you tell your friends about it, you will never guess who I hung out with today. You will never guess what this guy or this girl is like. That's the way it is. There aren't many of them out there. That's why they stand out like that. Ryan Day's generational. He's just next level. I'm not telling you he's overtaking Nick Saban tomorrow. I'm telling you outside of Nick Saban, there is not a head coach that I believe in more over the next five years than Ryan Day. People with options... When you're still unproven in terms of result and a bunch of people with options to go elsewhere don't think a second about going elsewhere, that should tell you all you need to know about what you have as the head coach at Ohio State. They're set at quarterback for the next several years. Uh, they are a destination for everyone, both players and coaches. NIL is going to be a goldmine for them. How anyone looks at Ohio State and thinks anything other than they're going to be right there every year and Ryan Day is going to be right at the front as they are right there every year, I don't get it. I've asked people to explain it to me multiple times. I don't get that. I don't need a feeling out process. In other words, I don't need to see the trophy case fill up before I know what he's capable of.
So I will gladly buy all the stock you want to sell me if you got some in Ryan Day. The last thing I want to do is talk about a new head coach because there was a lot made of the entire Auburn coaching search. You know what? Actually, we haven't spoken about that in a while. So let's just let's take ourselves back to December. Remember, there was that whole mess down there at Auburn. Gus Malzahn's fired. It's my opinion in any other generation, what he was doing would be good enough because, you know, there were times where you looked at those blind resume comparisons and what he was doing was trending very comparable to a guy they named the field after down there and Pat Dye. But it wasn't good enough because you are judged, fair or not, against the backdrop of Nick Saban's Alabama in today's college football, especially if you are Auburn. And so Gus Malzahn's out. I'm not here to relitigate that. But then it looks like Kevin Steele's going to get the job. And then you got a bunch of other names that are thrown in there. And Brian Harson was not among them. And he comes out of left field. Literally, he's all the way up in Boise. And so a guy who, as Brandon Marcello wrote today on 247sports.com, a guy who's never lived east of the Mississippi River is all of a sudden the head coach at Auburn. So kind of the same way when Ryan Day was hired at Ohio State, a lot of people looked at Auburn hiring Brian Harson and said, whomst? They hired him as what What coordinator? No, he's going to be the head coach there. The head coach? Wh- why? They couldn't do better than that? Well, that was the initial impression. And so I, re- I just want to – a lot of you don't understand Auburn because Auburn is a very unique place. So if you've never been there, you don't really get it. And they'll be quick to tell you that if you haven't already heard that. But they're right about it. It's a very special town. I grew up very close to it. It's a unique culture. The game day atmosphere is second to none. There's a spirit there. Like the people are very, very proud. They're very invested. It's kind of, in the context of college football, it's got a very high school football feel to it. The way that once you get inside that bubble, you understand it. But if you're not inside that bubble, it makes no sense. So again, Marcelo writes a piece over on 247sports.com today that I would encourage you to go read because he... He spoke with Brian Harson. I mean, I remember when he did this piece, he sat there in the office with him. So he got a lot of really good access to Brian Harson. And Harson was very open about saying at the very beginning of this whole process, he didn't know a whole lot about Auburn. And over time, Alan Green, the athletic director there, who he really let him hang, just to be honest with you. In this whole process, Alan Green's the right guy for the job at Auburn uh, because he he had some people kind of figuratively try and shove him, but Alan Green's the wrong guy to try and shove, and the wrong people tried to shove him, and he just stood there, kind of deadpanned him, and then they cowered, as those kinds of people tend to do, and then you get the president on your side, and you can go make your hire. Instead of making a typical Auburn hire, they got to make the right hire, and they used the right process to go make the hire. So books will be written about that one day, but now you got Brian Harson on campus. Well, here's the follow-up question. How's he going to win in the SEC? How's he going to win at Auburn? What does he know about Auburn? How's he going to assemble a staff? How does he know how to recruit in the Southeastern Conference? There are a couple of things I'm sure of. Number one, I'm sure of the fact that I think the Auburn job is the hardest in America. Number two, I think Brian Harson doesn't really care about that. So both of those things can be true. But what's the blueprint? That was the entire premise of this article Marcelo wrote today. And the Boise State blueprint is what we're talking about. So the big question on the table for Brian Harson is, will the Boise State blueprint work at Auburn? Uh, the short answer from this kind of semi-informed person's opinion is, yeah, I think it will. What is the Boise State model, though? Well, there are two things you need to know about the Boise State model. Number one, it's boring. And so number two, it is absolutely what Auburn needs. It's boring because there's not this one secret. It doesn't really look cool on a bumper sticker. There's no ultra-proprietary scientific technology that goes into it. 
It won't win you any press conferences. You won't watch SEC Media Days in two weeks and say, boy, Brian Harson really won this thing. That's not how you win football games to begin with, though. What it will be is just mastering the mundane, the little boring ugh, everyday tasks that you have to do as a normal person or you got to do as a left tackle if you're playing for an SEC West Power. You got to do those every day at a certain standard in order to achieve at a high standard. Now, that sounds boring. That's why people don't get into it. It's why so many people get fooled in the hiring process to going to someone who promotes their system and who's all about the one, two, and three, and we do these things, and we'll be there in two years, and it's all flash, and it's no substance. This is going to be boring when you hear him talk about it. But then when you get results, it's not boring anymore. You may ask, though, well, if it's that simple... If Brian Harson just needs to implement this simple day-to-day -day strategy to win at Auburn, well, how come everyone doesn't do that? Well, exercise and proper diet is about all it takes to be in shape. You see what one of the biggest epidemics in our society is? So it's one thing to be easy in theory. It's a totally different thing to have not only the individual discipline, but here's where it's really hard to be a head coach, the organizational discipline to implement it and have people adhere to that when you're watching them and when you're not watching them. Which brings me to really the crux of this entire question at Auburn. It's not whether Brian Harson gets it. It's not whether his model works. Of course it works. Multiple guys have implemented it, himself included at Boise. It's worked. So you don't have to question whether the approach works. What you have to question is whether he gets enough buy-in from his roster, from his coaching staff, from the entire organization at Auburn, because that's the key. And there's a certain kind of guy who can accomplish that, and they're few and far between, and that's what Alan Green was looking for when he went out to find his head coach. He wanted a guy with a proven process, but then he wanted a guy who was going to come in, in this case to totally unfamiliar territory, and not let that shake him, and he's going to get in, roll up his sleeves, go to work, get you a staff that knows the back roads and recruiting territories in the SEC, at least to start off with, but then... You talk about your player. Auburn's had a little recruiting run of their own right now, but they haven't been flashy about it. It hadn't been a bunch of five-star guys committing to Auburn, but what that staff will tell you is it's our guys. Now, this is not me just baselessly spouting off propaganda for Auburn. What I'm telling you is I'm giving you a fair shake of how things are viewed at Auburn, and that may be a little bit different than how they're viewed outside of Auburn. What Auburn folks, that staff, most importantly, is going to tell you right now, if you were to talk to them, is, it doesn't really matter. Like, we got our guys in here. We got guys that we want. We got what we would call Auburn guys in here. And so if we got them, then we don't really care how many stars are next to their name, all due respect. Uh, we don't really care necessarily who we had to beat for this guy, who we had to beat for that guy. What we know is we got a development system in place. It's already tried and true. It's proven. And so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, we've got every step of this process laid out. What we have to do is we have to get buy-in. But what you're going to find, what Brian Harson will find, and he already knows it long before I say it, is in this conference and in the division they play in, there is a minimum baseline of talent that they're going to have to have. Even if every part of that process is adhered to because of how good the teams you play are, how talented they are, and how good at developing a lot of those talented teams are, too, you're going to have to have a certain baseline of talent. So you can't, you can't Michigan State or Iowa State your way through the SEC and achieve at an SEC championship caliber level. Let me put it that way. The theory works. The principle works. The big question about this whole Boise State approach at Auburn is not will it work in theory. It's do you get enough buy-in collectively? Do you get enough buy-in? Because there's 
there's a lot of noise that sometimes you have to deal with when you get higher caliber athletes, when you get a higher profile program, when the heat of the spotlight gets turned up a little bit. There's just a little more noise that you have to deal with sometimes, and there's a little more convincing you have to do sometimes that what you know works, works. You're convinced of it. They got to be convinced of it. That's the only question I have with Brian Harson at Auburn. How quickly can he get full community and organizational buy-in? If he gets that, there'll be a thorn in the side of the SEC for years to come. So we had a little glitch there. I think Colin made a diving stop in there, and he saved the stream there for us. So I appreciate you being tuned in. Here's what I was saving for last. As some of you have noticed, a few of you very influentially, is that a word, have noticed, over the last couple of shows, I've put out a little, little chum in the water at the end of the show. And I've told you we don't have any sponsorship on the show. We could change that. Uh, it took a grand total of one or two times saying that for some really big fish to come in. At, right to the email inbox, actually. And so... I say all that to say it's been a very good week for us. However, if you are in the ad sales world, you'll know what I'm about to say. And if you don't, don't worry, the show's almost over. If you got some Q3 discretionary still left and you want to do some business and you think it's the right fit, joshpate706 at gmail.com. There's not a lot of room left, but there's still some room. So again, if it's the right fit, we'll make it happen. If it's not, we won't worry about it. Uh, but some opportunity is there. I'll just leave it at that. Our salary looks the same either way, but I would love to have partnerships if they are the right partnerships. And with that, we are done for tonight. Good to be back in the studio. For Director Colin, for our entire crew down in Fort Lauderdale, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your weekend. We'll see you right back here same time Sunday night. Until then, God bless.